0: check check sound check check
1: check check one check check one hey
0: eric yeah
1: did you know hitler forbade american comic books in nazi germany
0: that doesn't shock me
1: doesn't shock me in the least but you know what he did love he loved mickey mouse
0: the fair loved mickey mouse
1: can you imagine that yes we will all watch the mouse
0: people all watch the mouse and you enjoy it
1: but not the duck. so duck so is quite foul.
0: Welcome to Nerds on History. My name
1: is Eric Brickmont. And I'm Brian Moriarty. Hey, Eric, you were really excited the past couple of weeks uh, because of you, you love space. You're really into the space program. And you were like so, so titillated about the fact of, um, of Curiosity making a safe landing on Mars.
0: Well, I think like a lot of astronomy uh, nuts, uh, I, I went through a range of emotions you know, I, I started out as being extremely excited eight months ago when, when curiosity actually lifted off through our atmosphere on its on its epic journey to Mars, but then completely and totally terrified <laughs> by the idea of, OK, what happens like most Mars missions when this doesn't work? Uh, how many hopes and dreams are going to be crushed in the process? And then thinking, well, this is NASA. OK, NASA's really good at going to Mars. We're a lot better at it than anyone else. So hopefully this is going to work. This will be fine. And then they released that video online. Seven minutes of terror. And anyone who's seen it, and if you haven't seen it, just go and watch it because it's, it's, it's really It's on incredible. NASA's website, right? Yeah, it's on, yeah. It's on the JPL website. Um, but the the <laughs> creativity and the way behind designing the way to actually land this thing Uh, Is pretty terrifying what they had to do to actually get it onto the surface, Um, including, you know, the most creative part of it all, the sky crane, which after (laughs) it goes plummeting through the atmosphere six times faster than a speeding bullet, uh, it now has to come to a very quick stop and very gently put this extremely expensive piece of machinery down on the Martian surface. What was
1: the speed? Because they said they had to do it. It was like it I was hearing the numbers. I was like...
0: I, 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 I don't remember off the top of my head, but it, 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 it was it like is,
1: thousands of miles per yeah, hour.
0: it's it's ridiculous. It's like um, I think they were hitting Mach four or five once they yeah, and once they
1: had the to go to like just a gentle, almost almost idle. Basically, I, I think
0: the best analogy I heard was it was like going um, sixty miles per hour on the freeway and then going to a complete stop within six inches. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> The look on your face says it all. Um, <laughs> you 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 at home can't tell the look on Brian's face, of course, but you'll just can interpret my my inter- my uh, reaction to it all. Um, it, it was a really incredible feat, and the sky crane, you know, because here's this this beautiful little rover just tend- dangling above the Martian surface, coming in very very hot, and the the you know the jets fire and slow it down to a point, but then they lower it down, um, you know, using this, these cabling and very gently, just kind of boop, land it right on the surface of Mars, and then this sky crane flies off into the distance and explodes in the distance. <laughs> and it's so cool because they actually caught it on uh, on film. They or, or not film, but they got a picture of it, uh, and you can see in one picture this giant plume of Martian dust being thrown up in the air by this crashing sky crane. And the next picture, it's all gone. It's all quiet and calm. It's pretty neat.
1: And it was really, really just the way you're describing it made it made me very interested in it, and. This is history in the making. Yeah, uh, and for those who are maybe a little bit too agnostic for the space program, why is Curiosity so important? Curiosity is the the
0: accumulation of so much effort and hard work that's gone on uh, in the past fifty years to take man-made objects and actually get them to the surface of Mars and perform some real serious scientific research in the hopes of discovering more about this very iconic planet that has been uh, a, an important part of who we are as people, as, as the human species, since, you know, we really looked up into the sky and gave it a name, you know, back in ancient times. And uh, it, it has, um, you know, just developed the imagination of so many people throughout the ages because it's so similar to our planet, yet it is so completely different. And of course, it, it always begs the question, was there ever life on Mars? Is there in some form life still existing on Mars? And what does it mean for us if we actually discover that to be true? What does that mean for us as a, as a species? Now we have to reflect on ourselves and acknowledge the fact that Earth is not the only safe haven in the universe. It is not the only place that life can develop. And that, uh, that's that been you know pretty exciting to think about for a long time now.
1: Now you were telling me Correct me if I'm wrong here, you said that Mars was like one of the first other planets that we, we recognized, like the, a civilization was actually able to recognize just by looking in the sky.
0: That's right. There are um, certain planets, of course, that are much closer to Earth that are, you know, we can observe up in the heavens and be able to see and check track their planetary movements, right? So the Greeks, of course, were, were some of the first to, to um, create a science around it, so to speak. The ancient Egyptians did recognize them, as did the ancient Mesopotamians, and wrote about them. Um, but they never had developed as serious an observation around them as the Greeks did. Uh, Ptolemy and his his um, observations of the heavens carried over right into to Greek time or to Roman times, um, and the the building of you know armillary spheres, for example, which was essentially a, a virtual map of the heavens and the way in which the planets. Uh, And the sun and the moon then, you know, appeared at that time anyway to to move around the earth. The earth as the center of the universe in our ancient uh, way of thinking about it. We now know that to be quite a bit different. Of course, our earth is one of many planets that actually orbits and revolves around the sun. uh, And we exist in a much, much bigger universe than we we thought we did even just, you know, 100 years ago.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't until Galileo that we really had a a fairly solid theory that – Really deflated geocentricity, yeah, um, and that we were more we were heliocentric. We, we were well. We were Copernicus the sun. was the
0: first to really come up with the idea. Was yeah, Galileo he who, it on his who validated it? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah.
1: Copernicus published on his deathbed because because he, he was afraid of the retribution of the Catholic Church. Yeah, exactly.
0: Which unfortunately, poor Galileo then kind of had to deal with himself when he was put into house arrest.
1: Yeah, of course. It helped that his best friend was the Pope. So it doesn't hurt, you know, yeah. when you can
0: do a little uh, name dropping of a of yeah. Popal variety.
1: Papal. Papal, papal. whatever. Popal, Papal, <laughs> Potato, Potato. Yeah. It's a history show, not a grammar show. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, to us, we don't think about it too much because we have so much other material to distract us. But... To the ancients, the stars was kind of like, I mean, we had, of course, mythological stories and things like that, but a lot of them were tied into the stars. They were tied, yeah. tied into nature. It explained how we, how things came about, and, and Mars was definitely a part of this, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, ancient observations of Mars, it was, it was pretty unique in the sky because it was noticeably different than other, other celestial uh, objects, right? It was noticeably red, um, and it had predictable movements. As did all the planets at that time, uh, or now even. But you know, it was it was predictable to kind of see them. And in fact, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans associated its red color with their gods of war. Uh, in fact, the word Mars is the name of the ancient Roman god of war. So there's a pretty yeah. obvious tie in right there.
1: Yeah, well, it's actually interesting. Um, we have a I have a friend, and you're about to get your shout out, sir, uh, whose name is Marius, and the name Marius is derived from basically saying. Of I am of Mars. Uh, and Mars was also, it was a name almost for like man. This is, this uh-huh. is man. Yeah, you exactly. In his most masculine state. So. And of course,
0: we have Venus that kind of represents the woman. And so, of course, there's a whole very, Popular set of books out there. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Right, which is really unfortunate for the women because Venus is a horribly nasty place to be. <laughs> it's so <laughs> ironic, wise. isn't it? Yeah. You know, when the when the Greeks looked up in the heavens and they saw this beautiful shimmering point of light, they named it after their their god of of love um, and sensuality because it was so beautiful, so warm, and it sure is warm. That's that's for sure. Um, unfortunately, it's covered uh, with extremely th- thick cloud layer that causes this terrible greenhouse effect and it is so warm that everything that we've ever sent to that planet has melted within just a few minutes it (laughs) is a really nasty hellish place to be yeah um and women out there in the world that's your planet (laughs) sorry (laughs) we didn't know it at the time we thought it was a lot nicer yeah but you know you know mars has captivated a lot of attention over the years and it's captivated my attention since i was a little kid. You know, my father is an amateur astronomer. Um, He's been very much involved with Lick Observatory, which for those of you who are not aware of is uh, located here in the Bay Area. Uh, It houses or it did house at one point the largest telescope in the world, the 36 inch refractor, where a lot of great serious scientific research was done, including the discovery of Jupiter's fifth moon Uh, was all done up there. Right. And, and
1: this is the observatory that's officially tied to UC Berkeley's astronomy program. Mm-hmm. Correct? That's correct.
0: And uh, UC Santa Cruz. It's, it's UC all Santa part of the UC man. system, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly,
1: But it's actually in Mount Hamilton, which is in, technically, within the bounds of San Jose, correct? Yeah, it's
0: considered San Jose. It's
1: considered San Jose. So mm-hmm. go figure, right in our backyard. Right in our backyard. Yeah. yeah. James Lick, uh, California's first
0: millionaire, in fact, is the one who uh, funded up all the money to build it and created it and uh, is now the only man in the world buried beneath a telescope uh, according to his wishes, his body was exhumed from San Francisco when the telescope was complete and then uh, placed underneath it while they were assembling it. So
1: kind has of has that distinction, too. Kind of a cookie guy that James Lick. Oh, he was a wild one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not <So>. really.
0: Uh, <laughs> but anyway, to, to tie it back up there, I mean, I've, I've been exposed to astronomy my entire life. Um, I remember very young. Some of my earliest memories are standing around in a field with about 60 or 70 other people all set up with telescopes having a star party. And while Mars was never really great to look at through a telescope, it, it didn't look nearly as impressive as the larger gas giants like Jupiter or Saturn. It was still, to me, the underdog. I loved it. It captivated my imagination. And, of course, when I was a kid, we had all sorts of great uh, images of Mars, which have really only come about, you know, in a very short amount of time. We really haven't had any good images of Mars until the 1970s where we had – which just before that in the 1960s when Mariner flew by – um, for those of you who don't know, the Mariner space program or the Mariner program was uh, a series of probes that was sent out into the, into the the solar system and uh, made our first up close flybys Mars. And you know, it was a lot different than what people were expecting it to be. Uh, there was this kind of romantic idea around Mars. You know, um, through our observations in the in the late 19th century. Uh, and even up into the early 20th century, we had assumed that Mars would have been very much like Earth. Uh, we knew that it was very similar in size. We knew that its mass was very similar to Earth. Uh, we knew that it, it shared some of these characteristics because it was a rocky planet, right? It's a terrestrial planet, like most of the planets in the inner solar system are. Um, but we now knew that it was different than than the other planets. It could possibly even hold life. And in the end of the 19th century, there was a, an astronomer by the name of Schiaparelli and Giovanni Schiaparelli had made observations with, uh, of Mars and of its surface of what he could distinguish and see of it. And he saw fissures and lines that ran, ran along the planet. Uh, in Italian, these were known as canales. Now, unfortunately, when the, uh, the public, you know, papers were published in, um, you know, people in the in the West got a hold of them in, in, in America and, and in Britain, they translated this as canals, which got all sorts of people really interested in thinking, Oh wow, people are building canals on Mars. There must be Martians. There must be aliens on this planet. And I wonder if they're not unlike us. Uh the truth is canali in Italian just means channel, mm. which is a natural uh nature made Product, you know, it doesn't have to be made by a person. Whereas a canal implies that there's an intelligence behind it, uh, and so of course a lot of people got behind that idea that there was life on Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. In fact, a lot of early, you know, literature around science fiction was very fixated on Mars. Uh, there was all sorts of attempts to contact Mars, including uh, people who would set up large arrays of of you know electric light bulbs out in a field and try to signal mars or set up mirrors and try to signal mars and see right. if there was any intelligent life we get a response back. not
1: realizing that of course they were millions of miles away too far away for uh, way too far way away too far. away for it to even show up as a blink
0: yeah you're a couple <laughs> miles up you're not gonna even see it <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> yeah um well know, is it a, give them the aim for effort
0: yeah oh yeah absolutely
1: yeah, but you mentioned science fiction, and I immediately think of um, John Carter. Uh, the most I mean, that movie just came out within a year or so ago. And I don't think it got the, the, the marketing it deserved because John— I never,
0: C- I never saw it, but my four-year-old is absolutely fascinated by it.
1: Yeah. Well, did you know—are you familiar at all with the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories? No, I'm not, actually. Yeah. I'm not too big on them either. Um, too familiar with them, rather. But um, Edgar Rice Burroughs was also inventor of Tarzan also he wrote a, a a novel called the Princess of Mars in the and basically the John Carter movie is based off of that hmm. ordinary man uh, in this case he's a civil war vet who um, is transported to Mars through the technology of of the the Martians though they, of course they don't call it Mar- Mars they call it barsoom that's their word for their own planet um, and he ends up becoming a hero on this planet but he ends up actually to bring this to our last episode he has a carries a lot of traits with superman in that when he's on that planet he has the ability oh. to jump further and faster and he's stronger um i was trying to figure
0: that out because like i said i hadn't actually seen the movie but i saw like the the trailers for it and the previews on, on yeah, television which is why
1: like you're wondering like why is he jumping over a monster that high up right, and, right, right yeah right. that's all ju- justified in the movie but nevertheless that was born out of what you're talking about, late 19th century perceptions of what we thought Mars atmosphere was going to be like. Yeah. You know?
0: That's neat. I like that. Yeah. I didn't know that. What I mean, when I think of early science fiction and I think of Mars, I think of H.G. Wells. Okay. And I think of the War of the Worlds.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, can't, We can't not talk about that and how big of an impact that's had on our, our American society particularly, but really just... 20th century in general sure
0: and long before you know tom cruise ever ruined it uh just throwing it out there it was it it was notorious actually it was it was very well known for actually inciting panic I, i believe when it first um aired as a radio drama nobody was informed that it would be leading in as a as a news bulletin that the martians were invading that they, yeah. were, they were they were attacking earth and everyone should run and hide yeah. and, and take uh, safe haven
1: well that and that just speaks to the brilliance of brilliance of orson wells no relation to H.G. wells um
0: oh did i i said hg wells didn't i
1: you, you, Well, hg wells is the yeah. guy who who wrote the book the war of the worlds orson wells was the guy who, who oh, that's was right. the one who, who, who performed it created i think you're good well, we'll we'll check this out later but i'm pretty sure you're you're okay Orson Welles was smart because what he had done is he had the lead in was just a musical program Uh, and then he like did the like the scratch abruptly stopped it started newscast and you're right there was no forewarning that because usually at that time they're going to say this is no the radio theater sponsored by so-and-so tonight's presentation of you know the war of the Worlds," and that wasn't the case it was the brilliance of Welles he got you right in there he got you right into the drama. And he freaked out a lot of people. Yeah, he had to make an apology. <laughs> he had to issue an apology because, like, people were like literally <laughs> like running in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, um, but
0: I think that just speaks to to the validity of Mars. You know, the way that it captivates people, the the hold that it has on people, and even if you weren't a you know astronomer at the time, you'd known of Mars, you'd heard of Mars, and you believed it. You believed in the possibility that there was life on another planet to the point where if somebody came over the radio and told you you didn't say oh that's garbage they don't know what they're talking about this must be some joke no you freaked out and you ran out into the street with your arms flailing around uh and you were you were absolutely terrified by the idea
1: right and that's that it doesn't just speak to the fascination with mars it speaks to something deeper i think i think it reaches into just the human need to see if there's something else like us right out there and we and that was a void that got filled with just the, the the magic of the the sheer magic of the idea that there there was another planet that was like ours. But to bring it back to War of the Worlds, that's a that was a big deal because a lot of alien and Asian movies have copied that movie repeatedly. Independence Day, I think blatantly steals <laughs> flat out steals from it. Except they use a computer virus, that not, not not a not a, an, not an vac- actual virus. Not an actual virus. But I mean, come on. Yeah. Like it's not even it's not even funny. It's- sure.
0: I mean, even M. Night Shyamalan's signs uh was a was a pretty big ripoff. Only their weakness was water. Right. <laughs> really? You couldn't figure that one out when you <laughs> landed on the planet that you were going to be allergic to water.
1: Yeah, it's only like two-thirds of the planet's surface. What's <laughs> that blue like stuff? It only falls
0: indiscriminately from the sky and, you know, you got all these lakes and rivers and oceans, you yeah. know.
1: What's that blue stuff? I, I think it's just a different color of ground. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fine. Maybe, what, then, what could okay, go wrong? Let's be fair. Maybe they thought the water was green and that the earth was blue, <laughs> ground was blue, and, like, okay, we'll stay away from the green stuff. We'll be okay.
0: <laughs> Colorblind aliens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Foiled their invasion plans. Anyway. But, yeah, absolutely. People have tried to copy it for ages, and some people have done pretty well with it. Others, well, water. Yeah. Uh, anyway.
1: In our kind of prep for the show, we were talking about how uh, NASA's been trying really hard to get a manned mission to Mars, yeah, Which would be unprecedented because we would actually be the first time where we would be able to set foot on another planet but it takes like 13 months to get there correct me correct or it, it, that depends if it's, if it's the right time of year you were saying it can right. take quite a because, bit longer because you
0: know we orbit elliptically we don't orbit in these perfect orbits where we yeah. always are a certain distance away from each other and instead. Mars also
1: has an elliptical orbit right yeah
0: and so we we're able to actually cross paths a little bit closer and sometimes than we are than others yeah so it's it's there's times when it's more appropriate and when it's easier to actually get to Mars right uh, which saves on fuel which saves on you know weight restrictions and all sorts of other things that the factor into actually getting there and getting to Mars is you know it's really tricky it's no wonder why for a long time we we've considered you know actually inhabiting Mars to be so far-fetched because it's been difficult enough for us just to send you know little probes there uh, the Russians learned this the hard way back in the 1960s uh, when the American and Russian space race to get to the moon really overshadowed a lot of what these other space programs were doing but they were still very dedicated to get out there and and learn more about other bodies in our solar system. So they sent out a lot of probes. Um, They sent out uh, the Russians, particularly the the Soviets at the time, uh, sent out the the Mars uh, 1M program and and Mars 1, uh, and sent out several craft that failed completely to actually make it to the planet or ended up uh, being destroyed while trying to enter into this atmosphere. Mm. Uh, that did not deter them, though, and it certainly did not t- deter the United States as there were several other successful flybys of Mars. Um, the Mariner program, for example, which I mentioned earlier, really gave us our first close-up look at Mars. And if you look at the photos now, they don't look all that hot. You know, They're not what we were compared to. When Curiosity landed on Mars, we had photos within minutes, and they were considerably better quality than we ever had back in the 1960s. But it was enough to make out a lot of the features of Mars and realize, hey, guys, this is not the the place for for life that we thought it was. If there's going to be life on this planet, it's going to be darn hard to find it. Uh, And we're going to have to do a lot more research. It's not going to be as simple just to fly over and say, oh, look, there's a herd of Martian elephants with three trunks uh, coming uh, uh, on the mountainside there. You know, it's it's not going to be that like that. It's going to be we have to get down on the planet. We have to understand the geology of this planet. And then we need to examine it to find any signs right. of microbial life or any former signs of microbial life, like right. fossils.
1: Well, you were telling me that Mars is really essentially, it's a desert. Just that it's its very dry and very barren. Barren, landscape. I think, is
0: the best way to put it, really. yeah. The Earth is unique. The Earth has a lot of really great things going for it that we take for granted. Uh, probably the most important is our magnetic field. So the sun that we have... Uh, idolized and, and looked at uh, as this powerful, life-giving energy source uh, throughout all of human civilization is actually a really, really radioactive and pretty dangerous thing to be living nearby. We are lucky because we have a magnetic uh, field that's generated by the core of our planet, the molten core, which is in movement. And this causes a magnetic field to be created. And it deflects and deters all the solar radiation that's being bombarded and burped out at our planet, every time there's a solar flare or a coronal mass ejection, you get this uh, this massive burp of of, so, of solar radiation that gets thrown at us. And if it wasn't for our magnetic field, we'd end up looking just like Mars. Mars lost its magnetic field four billion years ago, and so it's possible that at one time Mars was actually a pretty green place. That it looked very much not unlike a primeval Earth. You know, it would have had large oceans. Um, or most likely, actually, after studying the geography of Mars, massive lakes more than anything. Um, but it, it could very well have have been a place that once allowed for life to exist. But unfortunately, that magnetic uh, field is gone now.
1: Yeah, and four billion years is a long enough time where any possible relic of that would would pretty much be gone. Um, though the, you've said though they found fossils of bacteria. Uh, on on Mars, correct? Well, not exactly.
0: Okay, so there's a big debate over this, and and that's one of the reasons why we really need to go to Mars and check it out, because there are uh, meteor fragments that have been found on Earth that are believed to have been originally formed on Mars, okay? came from the the Martian uh, mantle. And due to some sort of cosmic collision, like a comet or meteor, uh, ejected that debris off towards Earth, and it got caught in our atmosphere and landed. Through examining that, they found Uh, evidence of microbial fossils. Some people suggest, okay, that these fossils existed on Mars, proving that there was once life on Mars, uh, and the fossils when when they were part of the ejecta were already formed. Other people suggest that these, um, this bacteria died here on Earth, and then became fossilized within the the material when it was on Earth.
1: Hmm. We're not exactly sure. Well, there's no real empirical way of Approving that, proving that it came from Mars.
0: I'm more in the party who believes that there's a good chance that that if this did actually, in fact, come from Mars, that that life formed on the planet back when it was wet. Yeah, and I think there's probably the best chance of us finding evidence of of life on Mars is going to be dead life, fossils, the remnants of life, as opposed to actual microbial life existing now.
1: Right, and the key to that is being able to find water or to being find proof that there was water because water without water you can't have life right. it's got two of the the primary elements that we need exactly um of like i think there's six primary elements that we need well, that the big ones consider. are water and carbon water carbon uh b- phosphorus as well and sulfur as well sure. and nitrogen yep. as well which all
0: exist on on Mars even you know even oxygen exists on Mars but in very very trace uh quantities there's not yeah. a whole lot of it it's about 95% carbon dioxide is what the atmosphere is made out of i, mean, I think it's something like 3% nitrogen and some trace elements
1: of argon and, and so oxygen. plants could plants could technically live on it's mars. got
0: everything it needs yeah. except for that darned electromagnetic field yeah which is really unfortunate yeah. because it'd actually be a really fantastic place for us to form uh, an off-earth colony and that's really been that dream right like you were yeah. like to go back to people want to get to mars people want to live there and it would be possible in fact there's a lot of people on the planet right now who are trying to make that a reality and it may come down to the fact that governments just aren't suited to send us to Mars. There may not be enough money in the world governments to do it. It may take private enterprise to actually get us there. And we're not just talking Richard Branson in no. the, on the space shuttle. <laughs> he wants to go and pop champagne corks up in uh, outer space and build a tourism industry about low Earth orbit. And that's fine. I think it's cool. Hey, if I had $70,000 to buy a ticket, I'd do so too. Um, but I'm talking about uh, organizations around the world that are trying to come together within the... Within the private world and develop the technology that we need to not only get there but to actually sustain us there because that's the trick if we go to mars there's a really good chance that we're going to stick around for a while we're probably not going to do what we do with the with the apollo missions and land on the moon gather up some rocks and then come on home If we're going to go and make the effort to get all the way over there we might as well stick around and do some real you
1: know science for a while well we haven't done this type of exploration since the 1500s at least from from the European perspective, right, you know, and that's it's like that level that we're talking about. I mean, the 1500s explorations of the New World—it was as much of a of a of a crapshoot as anything we, we could have think or thought of today. It's it would have been like us going it, to the moon. In
0: fact, they had yeah. less information yeah. to go off of. They saw a horizon. They had maybe um, gathered some loose information based on other people's travels and went ahead and just said, "You know what? Let's just let's just do it." Let's just go for it, and they and it paid off in a big way. We have a whole lot more information. We know what to expect, and we know what to bring with us. And yet,
1: there's still a lot of barriers that are thrown up in that way. The biggest of them all is money, basically,
0: pretty much, which is yeah. kind of sad. You know, I remember um, being a kid and hearing my father and mother describe the pride uh, and admiration that they felt for their country when they watched the first man land on the moon, when Neil Armstrong walked off of the, the lander and and made his historic statements. And, you know, my parents aren't like the most patriotic person, you know, they don't, they're not going out there uh, waving flags and setting off fireworks on, on 4th of July, they sit at home and, and actually be quite boring, but that's okay. That's that, uh, again, yeah, that's, that's beside the point. Uh, but just to, to see the pride that they, they felt, I wanted that, you know, sure. and that's, and I still want it. <laughs> I want to be able to say, yeah, we did it. We made it to Mars and we did it because, you know, to quote JFK, not because it was easy, but because it was hard, because we wanted to, to go there and actually do it and prove that we could do it. Uh, and I think that we need that spirit. We need that person behind it. And even though the origins of the American spaceflight are so deeply rooted in politics, not so much so oh, in science, there was still that that spirit that actually got us there. And in my opinion, the, the astronauts of the Apollo program are some of the truest American heroes we're ever going to we're ever going to have. Uh, I feel a great deal of pride in their accomplishments and I would feel a great deal of pride in the accomplishments of anyone who had chosen to venture out to Mars. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's a tricky place. It's not so easy to get there. Trust me, we've 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 tried it and we've succeeded, but not without a whole lot of failures yeah. in between.
1: And we even though we have the process fairly well down, we we don't always get there. That's right. Like I think you said was like there's an 8 out of 10 chance that we'll, that we'll make, or is it even less than that?
0: I, You know, I, I don't remember now off the top of my head what the statistic is, but it, it's very rare that we actually have made it there based on all the manned missions that have been sent. Yeah. We've had a much better track record in recent years, yeah. though, and NASA has really done it by taking chances. And when yeah. you're taking chances with a $2.5 billion device, you're, you better right. <laughs> at least have a pretty good
1: plan right. in place. Definitely not. We're not in the phase where we'd be marketing this for travel. Can you imagine that? Oh, my God, yeah. no. Come fly a red planet's starship. We might get to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> or you may die. But if you die, you'll be known forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: it, it's been tricky. But, you know, in, in the 1970s, we really renewed a lot of interest in Mars because we took those chances, because we sent out the Viking landers. And those were the first landers to actually send back color photos of the martian surface Mm. and that's the time that we realized that mars kind of almost looked like earth it really wasn't all that different the geology was pretty similar in fact there are deserts around uh america and the and north america that look very much like the surface of mars yeah um in fact that's where nasa does a lot of its experimentation and testing of these devices
1: you know I remember seeing a couple of these high-res photos that were taken a couple of years ago. There was a little bit of that breathtaking moment. It's like, this does look just like the rock formations you would see in a desert. Th- that is definitely awe-inspiring. It also kind of awakens the paranoia, though, of some. Because there have, just for as much as there have been people who want to praise the accomplishments of man, there are also a very, very small few who, despite all logic and despite all, <laughs> all evidence... Will still deny the existence of, of an event actually taking place, and I'm of course referring to to really two groups of people. One are the people who debate that the moon landing never actually took place, that it was a cover up, it was a conspiracy to boost morale in America, and the other is um, the people who still there are still people who believe that the Earth is still flat and that everything since then has been a cover up. Uh, all the pictures, all the pictures <laughs> uh, of Earth uh, from uh. space are forgeries, and I'm sure there's somebody out there. Who is seeing? is like, oh, those are just like, those are computer generated. Those are, those are, oh, those are from this. See, there's this picture of this in the Arizona desert. It looks just, it looks kind of like this, this picture from Mars. It's It can't be real. It can't be real. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just opened up a big fat can of worms. Big old fat can of worms. <laughs> this goes back to
0: my very strong belief that the people who went to the moon, who landed on the surface of the moon, and every single person who gave up so much of their lives back here on earth to design the technology and to organize it and to keep them safe on these journeys each and every single one of them deserves my respect and admiration and every person who tells me that it that it was faked that it isn't real
1: you want to slap them pretty much
0: slap I think is is far too light <laughs> uh, it, it's it's just it's a horrible insult right down to your core I hate that I really do because we did something amazing why would you want to belittle that? Why would you want to take away from that? And you really, you, you can't deny it when you, when you actually hear the recordings that were made, when you hear the excitement and enthusiasm and the voices and the nervousness and the intention and everything that went into to these people's emotions while they were doing these things, you, you can't deny it at that point. And I know there's some great actors out there, right? And they say, oh, well, they just picked some great actors. No, they picked test pilots. Yeah. They picked people who were willing to put their ass on the line because it was a job. That's what they mean by the right stuff. Okay? That means that you cannot be shaken. You will do whatever it takes to get the job yeah. done in the face of anything. And these guys were tough as nails, but they were not actors. Okay? Man. None of them had any career on stage. Well, absolutely. And I I just have to tie it in to um oh gosh, who was it? It was the third man on the moon.
1: It was Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins were the guys who were on the. Oh, you're talking about. No, no, oh, no. That, it,
0: the, the first Apollo mission was uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the surface of the moon. Michael Collins, yeah, Michael was, Collins was floating about yeah, up yeah, there. Yeah, okay. so I'm you're actually talking about, talking about the third person to step foot on the moon. Oh, I need to find his name. Hold on one second. I'm going to find his name.
1: Those out there, you can't tell. I'm actually juggling right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Stop it. We're not going to put this in. Okay. So Pete Conrad, who was the third man on the moon, he was so excited. You know what his first words were? Whippy, <laughs> whippy were his first words on the moon, and he follows it up later with, "That may have been one small step for for Neil, but that was one giant leap for me." <laughs> <laughs> See, that was that would have been perfect. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, just to get back to that point, these people were so proud of what they were doing; mm. they were so excited, and it just, oh God, I just want well, oh. to. Quote,
1: to quote the comedian Eddie Izzard, it's just like, you know, he had to come up with something big to say when he was stepping. On to the moon. You have to say one small step for man, a, one giant leap for mankind, because you're not going to go out into the moon and say, oh, it's all sticky. <laughs> it's covered in jam. Well, it's quite dusty and rather unpleasant, right. to or, be honest. Or the, or I, why
0: did we come here in the first
1: place? Right. Or like, oh, f and I've been in that spacecraft. Right, I could use a piss. <laughs> yes. Thank God
0: he did not say that.
1: <laughs> uh. Though we would have found it hilarious, but... <laughs> Historians would have had to have made an edit there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, you have a chirp for us, don't you?
0: Yeah, I do. Actually, it's yeah. really
1: funny. I wanted to share it.
0: <laughs> so um, it, it kind of ties into what we were talking about. Rather than faking images of Mars, this is a real image of Mars, but it was one that was taken completely out of context. That I think was absolutely hilarious. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna chirp it to you guys, and I I want Brian to get his um, impression of this because it's 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 pretty funny. So go ahead and open up that link. It's a link. Um, and you can always just go and uh, and Google search for those of you who aren't chirping bigfoot on Mars. <laughs>
1: oh that is classic this is like weekly world news caliber
0: yeah i know so okay there's this (laughs) tiny for those of you who just decided you know what i'm tired of this chirping i don't want them to go ahead and send me anything it's it's a picture of a rock and in the way that it looks it's actually a really tiny little section of this photo you can't see within um within the rest of the photo but to scale this is probably only just a couple inches tall right but uh it looks just like that famous um of the peterson (laughs) photo right the famous bigfoot photo from the 1960s that's walked uh and it's, it's hilarious <laughs> because it actually went around the internet for a little while before anyone realized that they're like oh my god see there's life on mars bigfoot's, bigfoot's on mars is, bigfoot's martian that's a classic <laughs> and you know it's funny because there was the other very famous one that went on for a lot longer that some people are still believing in and that's the face of mars oh yeah i was gonna
1: ask about that
0: so the face on mars um is actually a whole uh it's a shadow play is all it is it's a a mountain and the way that the features are and the way that the shadow was cast when those photos were taken make it look like a face there's no actual face on mars and we can thank the the mars reconnaissance orbiter for giving us actual real nice detailed photos of this exact same mountain and you can completely tell it's it's not a face at all sorry Wouldn't that be cool though? <laughs> you know, if there was an ancient civilization putting something conveniently on the surface of Mars for us to have a look at.
1: Well, not only that, but you would also have to have a, a big enough knowledge of the t- topography. To be able to have sculpted a face pointing upward
0: and right at us, right exactly. where they really knew we would fly something by. It's land. not like
1: Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore, more the mountains are facing us. This is it facing out into space. Yeah. So it's like, it's a nice thought, but I, it's just it is just coincidence. Yeah, sorry, folks. Yeah, uh, there is no intelligent life
0: on Mars. There are, mm. however, several very awesome mm. little rovers on Mars. Definitely. And like I said, we we landed Viking right in the nineteen seventies. But these were not rovers. These were literally just landers. They stayed in one spot, and they had a limited array of scientific uh, equipment on them that was able to examine the soil and examine uh, their surroundings via the, like I said, the first higher resolution color photos to come from Mars. And we thought to ourselves, you know what, this is all good and great, but we actually want to be able to move around on Mars. We want to be able to... um, prove that we can go and do more serious research and not just stay in one spot, but we can go and examine a lot more. Uh, And that's when Pathfinder was put together. And Pathfinder, which landed on 4th of July, uh, 1997, I remember very clearly, because this is one of the first times I ever saw an animated image from the internet. I remember I was sitting around the computer with my brother and my father, and they showed me this little tiny web clip uh, that was posted up online. And that showed the little rover, he's so cute, little Sojourner, uh, moving along the the surface of Mars. And when you take a look at this guy, the Sojourner, and then you compare it to rovers that that went later, it's night and day. This guy's really, really small, didn't really have very much in the way of scientific instruments on it. And so as such, it was able to do a very limited amount of science. And then eventually it was uh, it was it was done as a project. So, of course, they thought to themselves, well, what are we going to do next? Let's build bigger. Let's go and do something um, that will be able to have an even bigger impact because we're going to do two. We're going to send two rovers at the same time, just a you know, short time apart from one another when they actually land. Uh, and we're going to have them on different sides of the planet and we're going to be able to maximize even more science. And this has been one of the most successful, if not the most successful, NASA mission uh, in history. And this, of course, the, the twin rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. And I'm going to send us out another chirp. It'll be our last chirp of the evening here. And it's just a resource that I, I want to share with everyone if you aren't already familiar with it. In fact, a lot of people probably are because of the um, the popularity surrounding Curiosity. But I'm going to send you a link to the Jet Propulsion Laboratories website. Hold on a second. Okay, so here's the, the website to, to JPL. You can check out all the previous NASA missions to Mars. They're all on there. And Spirit and Opportunity were only expected to actually do their thing for a pretty short time. Sure. Uh, for just a couple of months. They really weren't expecting them to last for the six and eight years respectively, which is absolutely incredible when you think about it. Actually, wow. it's the other way around. I think Spirit is still the one going. It was Opportunity that, that um, got uh, stuck. That's crazy. Yeah. And they've just been going for years. And they've been doing so much impressive work. And it proved to everyone, especially in the government, that we, we could do this now. We could successfully get to Mars. And so that's when they, they doubled down and created Curiosity, which is essentially an SUV on Mars. It's the size of a, of a small sports utility vehicle. And it's got all sorts of really very cool, very impressive equipment on it. And it is powered by plutonium. Whereas the other rovers were all solar powered. And the problem was during the winter, these little guys just didn't have any energy. So they kind of went into hibernation mode. And then would be reactivated later in the spring. With our friend Curiosity, it can keep performing all the time, uh, and theoretically, this plutonium could keep it going for a really, really long time. Uh, it's just a matter of you know whenever the the mechanisms on the device start to start to wear out. Maybe by that by that time, we'll have someone there to fix it. Wouldn't that be cool if we did a service mission to Mars? <laughs> yeah, to go rotate Curiosity's tires. <laughs> we going to do a realignment of curiosity here. It's going to take about four hours. Just sit down, read a magazine.
1: That would be really, really cool. It would be. How do we want to close this?
0: That's a good question. I think everyone out there who's listening right now, if you haven't already seen it, go and uh, watch the reaction to the landing on Mars video. It's on the JPL website, right? It's called I think it's called uh, Curiosity Has Landed. And it is great because they use the same footage that they had in the other video, but they splice it into the actual reaction in the control room of all these people who had spent the past seven years of their lives sacrificing everything to make this possible. And to see their reaction when it happens. I mean, people are like throwing stuff up in the air and they're all screaming and yelling and hugging each other. This this great scene with this one guy who's just like bawling. He's just crying. And the emotion that goes into it. I, okay. It's great. You got to watch it. And, you know, it was so ironic because afterwards I watched it all live happening, right, on uh, NASA's website. Um, and afterwards there was the press conference. And ironically, it took exactly seven minutes for the entire uh, crew to come through and give high fives to all the the main directors of the program, which, of course, is exactly how long it took for them to get the information back, letting us know that Curiosity had safely landed.
1: Uh, yeah, cool. that's pretty funny. Right. And that's why they call it the seven minutes of terror. Seven minutes of We're terror. We're not sure. We're just waiting to find just out. just waiting
0: to find out if the past seven years of our lives. Seven, ironically, being that lucky number, seems to be uh, rather dominant here. But yeah. yeah.
1: I think, as usual, what we want to say is, don't take our word for it. Go out, go the, on the internet, go to a library, research it yourself. Correct us when we've made anything wrong, and we will also, by the way, for those who don't have chirp, we will include the links on Twitter. Yeah, so we we'll put can, them up for you that way, so that you can follow along. Fascinating, as always, talking about the space program. I mean, it's this been was, a pleasure. This needs to be an, another topic we revisit again.
0: I would be thrilled. To talk about the American space program uh, and actually what it took to get us into space and then get us to the moon. Because like I said, I have a great deal of admiration and I want to correct all those people out there who believe that we faked it.
1: Definitely. And any topics that you listeners out there have for us that are related to the space program, please tweet to us. Let us know. You can follow us on Nerdonomy uh, on Twitter and at our website at nerdonomy.com. And of course... I always say, don't forget to like us on Facebook. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Thank you for listening to us. Good night, Eric.
0: Good night, Brian.